0: Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You yet again for Your Word. We thank You that in it, we find life and light. We thank You that in it, we see the glories of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, as we consider the words of of Colossians 1 this morning, may our hearts grow in affection for that Christ, and may our minds grow in awe of who He is. Lord, meet us here through Your Word this morning. It's in Your name we pray. Amen. One of the reasons uh, I picked Colossians to follow Ecclesiastes uh, is that this book, unlike any other book in the New Testament, uh, captures our our vision statement, our mission statement as a church to glorify God by bringing all of Christ into all of life. So I want to echo... Uh, What Jim said this morning and encourage you, I know that summer is one of those times in Minnesota where we actually get to enjoy the outside. And so I know that a lot of you are going to be traveling here, there, everywhere this summer. I get it. I'm going to do a little bit of that uh, myself as well. But I want to encourage you that as you go throughout your summer, to check in on the website and listen to the sermons that you missed, because this series is going to be a rather important one. And we start this passage here with asking the question, Who is Jesus? Who is this Christ that we worship? It's the central question of Colossians, of all of Scripture, and it's not too much to say that it's also the central question of all of human history. There is no historical figure that has had a greater impact on world history than Jesus Christ. And that's true whether you believe in him or not. That's true whether you think he is God or not. And so, answering the question, who is Jesus, is of utmost importance, and it has elicited many different answers. There are many different versions of Jesus out there. For example, as Christianity grew and spread, there were many fights in the early church over who Jesus was. Was he fully divine or not? But really, most of the battles, especially early on, were over whether or not he was fully human. Or not. Christianity is the largest world religion, and obviously, Christ is important to that religion. But the next largest world religion is Islam. And if you don't know much about the origins of Islam, the the uh, well, the prophet uh, Muhammad received divine revelation in scare quotes. He didn't, right? But the motivation for that was. He believed that Judaism and Christianity had perverted the truth. So Islam was going to be the true version of Christianity. It was going to be the true version of Judaism. And so Islam teaches that Christ is a prophet. He is a prophet of God, but he's not God. The prevalence of Christ in world events is rather shocking, because all we can really know about him, about his origins or that he was a carpenter from the backwaters of the Roman Empire, with no political power, and who was executed as a criminal. So it is rather baffling, if that's all who Jesus was, that he would become such an important figure. And yet it is undeniable, any historian will admit this to you, if they don't have some jaded agenda, that he existed. There was a Jesus. There's more than enough historical evidence to support that. And the question is, who is he? And what do we believe about him? And because of that importance of that question, there are many errors out there about who Jesus is, how we answer that question. And so much it's so much so that we can even kind of just pick which Jesus do I want to worship? For a trite example, uh, in the movie uh, Talladega Nights, which is a movie I do not recommend to you, uh, Will Ferrell, Uh, plays a very moronic NASCAR driver. It's supposed to be a comedy. But there's this uh, very popular scene where he is praying before a meal. And as he prays before the meal, he prays in a very, I don't know, funny way to the newborn baby Jesus. Eight pounds, six ounces, baby Jesus. And everybody's like, why do you pray to that Jesus? He's like, well, you can pray to whatever Jesus you want to pray to when you pray. But this is the Jesus I like to pray to. And as trite and even blasphemous as that might be, uh, it reflects a real mentality in our culture. You pick the Jesus you want to follow, I'll pick the Jesus I want to follow, and we'll just all get along. I mean, we literally have people out there arguing that Jesus would be a communist, that Jesus is pro-abortion, and that Jesus could be your homeboy. That's dangerous. and That's not the Jesus you find in Scripture. But it is, again, nothing new. Even in the time of Christ, when he was there, when he was walking about, there were different versions that they thought that the Messiah would be. Who is this Messiah that has been promised? Well, he'll be the national land liberating Messiah that the Jews expected. That wasn't what he was. We had in the early church, the early Gnostic views of Jesus, that he didn't have a body. It just appeared that Jesus had a body, but he didn't really have a body because anything that's physical is evil. This is one of the first heresies the church had to deal with. Physical things are bad, so clearly God couldn't take upon himself a human nature, so Jesus didn't have a physical body. You could take more distortions, Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness. They say that Jesus is not eternally God. He is the first created being. He's the highest being, and maybe even in Mormonism he reached divinity, but there was a time in which Jesus was not, that God the Son did not exist. It's really no different than the old Arian heresy that the church expelled years ago. Today we have the liberalized Jesus who never judges, or the social justice Jesus who walks around with his socialist fist in the air. It could go on and on and on and on. People can take Jesus and make him into whoever they want him to be. Well, they can't really, but they think they can. And when writing on this book, the book of Colossians, the great Protestant reformer John Calvin said this, He said, this epistle, to express it in one word. If you want to know what this this letter is about, he says this. It distinguishes the true Christ from a fictitious one. This epistle in one word is there to help you understand who the real Jesus is. Versus all the other lies. The one who walked this earth, the one the scriptures foretold, would come, the one who died and rose again, the one who ascended to the right hand of the Father, the one who is coming back, and yes, even the one who confronted Paul on the road to Damascus. This Jesus was under attack way back when in the church of Colossae. So Paul wrote this letter to the early church to tell us who this real Jesus is. False teaching was a gift to the early church because it prompted the letters that we have today and it's hard to construct the exact nature of the false teaching that this church was dealing with right and when you study the letters there's always competing views of what is it that paul's writing to here what is peter addressing what is what is james addressing i can tell you there's at least two things that paul is addressing in this letter that are false teachings first a low and incomplete view of the person of christ One of the major themes of this letter is the supremacy of Jesus over everything. And Paul hits it again and again. And he does so because whatever was going on in that church was the opposite of that. And second, that this false teaching was likely Gnostic in content. By that, I mean it vilified and downplayed the physical. As we get into the letter, you're going to see that The Colossians had demanded, had it demanded of them, that they would deny themselves of everything physical. And this was often done under the guise of a very narrow and corrupt definition of the Old Testament laws. Physical was bad, physical was less than, what you really need is spiritual. And so Paul gives us an expansive and totalizing view of who Jesus Christ is. He's the Lord over everything that we have both spiritual and physical. And at the heart of this is the passage of Colossians 1:15 through 20. In that passage, we have what many think is an early Christian hymn, and that this would have been a song that the churches of the first century would have sung or an early church confession, the earliest beliefs we have on Christ. And in these 6 verses we have a breathtaking Scope given to Jesus. And we're going to cover these verses in two weeks. We're going to look at the first half here, verses 15 through 17, and we are going to see that Christ is the Lord over creation. And next week, in verses 18 through 20, we are going to see that Christ is the Lord over salvation. Those are the two big ideas that Paul is working through here. And it is only by seeing those two things. And everything that falls under it, that we get the true Christ. That you can see who the real Jesus is, so that you can identify all of the cheap knockoffs that are so prevalent today. So, Colossians 1 15 through 17. Christ is the Lord over creation. And we see this in two ways. First, the identity given to Jesus in these, in these verses as he relates to creation, and second, we, by his work within creation. So who's Jesus? His identity and what he does with creation. And then we're going to wrap that all up by taking the implications from that. What does that then mean for you? What does it mean for you? First, Christ's identity in regards to creation. Verse 15. Paul begins this section with two titles, two identities of this Jesus, this Christ. And those two identities are that he is the image of the invisible God, and he is the firstborn of all creation. Those are two titles given to him at the very beginning. And those two titles can be very easily misunderstood. And in fact, those two titles are taken all the time by those who don't understand Scripture to argue that Christ is a created being. Indeed, he's the firstborn of creation. Therefore, he must be a created being. But if you understand this passage in its context and in the context of the rest of Scripture, it's very clear that's not what Paul means. Not even close. So the first title, Christ is the image of the invisible God, is just another way of saying that He is God. Paul does not mean that Christ is the image of God like you and I bear the image of God. Genesis 1 tells us that Man was created in God's own image. Now, if that's all Paul meant by those words, it really didn't need to be included. There's nothing special about that. You bear the image, I bear the image, Christ bears the image. There's nothing noteworthy at all. But Paul is making a grander claim here. God is spirit, and because God is spirit, no one may see him. Jesus himself affirms this. No man has seen the only living God. It's true that God throughout the Old Testament would give visions and would give glimpses to his, of His glory to His people, but no man had really seen God. And yet Christ says in John chapter 14, that whoever has seen Him has seen the Father. If you have seen me, then you have seen the Father. Even more so in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I and the Father are One. We are one. So what Paul is picking up here by saying that Christ is the image of the invisible God is that the Lord, or Yahweh, or Jehovah, however you want to translate it, is invisible. And he even commands in the Ten Commandments that no one would make an image of him. And that none creates something to represent him. But in Christ, God provides for himself an image of himself. Put it in another way, Christ makes the invisible God visible. Christ makes the invisible God visible so that man might see him. So, when God the Son takes upon himself a real human nature, he walks, he talks, he eats, he sleeps in that nature. People touch him, people relate to him. And Jesus says, As you see me, you have now seen the Father. That's what it means. That he is the image of the invisible God. As God, this Christ is the creator of everything. This is where Paul is going. Since he is the eternal God, he has created everything that exists. He is the one who called the universe into existence. And he will circle back to this identity of him being God in verse 19. Have your Bibles open, look at verse 19. For in him, in this Christ, all the fullness of God Was pleased to dwell. So, you want to know what it means to be the image of the invisible God? Verse 19 helps you understand what he means. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. Now, let me make a statement here that might sound um, heretical, but I promise you it's not. A human nature, a limited, finite human nature, cannot contain the fullness of God. It can't. God's infinite. Even Jesus' human nature is finite. When Paul says here that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him, he is speaking about the person of Jesus. So in traditional Christology, we say that Jesus is one person, or God God the Son is a person, Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons in one God, and that one person has two natures a fully divine nature and a fully human nature. The fullness of divinity dwells in the person who has two natures, not in the nature itself. In Christ, we see the fullness of God. The second title given to the firstborn of creation is, uh, or is that he is the firstborn of creation, given to Christ here. This could also be wrongly interpreted that God the Son had a beginning, that there was a time in which God the Son did not exist. Again, this is a path many go down. Arianism, the ancient heresy, made that claim. Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness is make that claim as well. Jesus is divine, but he was also created. There was a time in which he was not. I spent some, some time myself this week on, on the uh, official website of the Church of Latter-day Saints of Mormonism and trying to find their actual teaching of Christ. And they just hide it. They will say he is divine. They will even say he is eternal. But what they mean by eternal and divine is different than what we mean by it. And this is why so many of them are confused because they're intentionally unclear about what they mean. They mean Jesus is divine in that he has become divine and he's eternal because he's become eternal, but there was a time in which he was not. That he's not eternal as Scripture means it. That he has always been. In Scripture, what does it mean to be firstborn? Well, firstborn is less about being born in the particular order And it has much more to do with legal status and rank. To be the firstborn means that you have certain rights and you have a certain inheritance. Paul here is alluding to Psalm uh, 89, verse 27 and following. I'm going to read a larger chunk here because I want you to see that this passage, Psalm 89, in its immediate context is about King David. It's about King David. And we read this. And I will make him, that's King David, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever in his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes." but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. Now, as you read this, you should be thinking of 2 Samuel chapter 7. In that, God gives a covenant to David. And it is pretty much quoted here that I will bless your children, David, and I will make you the firstborn. I want you to note that. David is not born the firstborn, but God promises to make him the firstborn. David if you remember your your Bible well, is the youngest of the eight sons of Jesse. He's not the firstborn. What What is God talking about here? He's not even the first king of Israel. He's the second. So how is David going to be the firstborn? Well, he gets the birthright. He gets the inheritance. He gets the rank that would normally go with the one who was born first. He inherits the crown, as it were. And we see this theme all throughout Scripture. That the firstborn is not chosen. Jacob is chosen over Esau. Joseph is chosen over his brothers. So is Judah. David is chosen over his brothers. The blessing often doesn't go to the one who is physically born first. Firstborn is more about rank and legal status. Christ is the firstborn over creation, not because he was created, but because he now has the divine right over creation. And he has that right because he is the creator of it and the savior of it. And so Christ has two titles given to him at the very beginning here. He's the image of the invisible God. That is, he is God. And he is the firstborn over all creation. And what we have here, the beginning of the doctrine of Christ, is a comprehensive beginning. That is, he is over everything. He inherits all of creation. And he rules over it. And that leads us to our second section. What is Christ's work in creation? So those are the titles, but what does he do? Who is this this God, the Son? Next week we'll cover cover his work as far as it's normally referred to, his work on the cross. But we're going to look at his creative works here. What What does he do in creation? Look again at verses 16 and 17. For by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What you have here are two basic works of Christ in creation. He is the creator of it, and he is the providential Lord over it. He creates and he provides. He creates and he sustains. So first, Christ created everything, and by everything I mean Christ created absolutely everything that is not God. So besides the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, everything else that exists was created through Christ. As God the Son, he created the universe alongside the Father and the Spirit. So much so that there is not a single thing that exists that does not exist by his creative power. So if you want to know what Paul means by those earlier titles, well... What does he describe him doing? Everything that exists, exists by his power. This is made clear again in John, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word. That's Christ. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Let me describe this for you. Of everything that exists, there are only two categories. There is that which has not been created, which is God, which has not been made, which is God, and there's everything else that has been made. And John says in these verses that everything that has been made, everything that had a beginning, was made through the Word. That means that the Word, the Son, can't be in this category. He existed before everything that was made. That means he goes into category one, God. And that is exactly what Paul is picking up here. That this Son, this Christ, is fully divine. And it means that everything exists, everything that exists, you and me, your cat, your dog, trees, the earth, the grass in your lawn, the seemingly infinite galaxies that we discover, came into being through this Jesus Christ. Don't miss that. Not only is he the firstborn of creation, but he made it all. Creation is Christ because he made it. His second work in creation is his providential care and upholding of creation. So God the Son did not just make everything and wind it up like a toy or spin it like a top and just said, alright, you go ahead. You're a machine that will run on your own. No, Paul says, in him... All things hold together. All things are held together by the Son. Not some of them, not just the spiritual things, but everything that exists is held together by the Son. He's actively upholding creation. He is not detached from it, but he guides and directs it and upholds it even this moment. And this means that if there was something that he'd stopped upholding in creation, it would cease to exist. So if Christ, for whatever reason, said, I'm going to be done upholding the rings around Saturn, there would no longer be any rings around Saturn. Everything that exists is dependent upon his constant upholding of creation. This is the comprehensive lordship of Christ as creator. And this brings us into some breathtaking territory as you think about his life here on earth God the Son in the flesh as he walked and talked in in Judah in Jerusalem as the Pharisees would malign him and attack him he was upholding them and their breath and their heart and their lungs and their brains and he upheld their existence he upheld the universe as he died upon the cross He upheld the composition of the nails that held him to the cross. Is it any wonder that creation itself went dark as its creator and sustainer died upon the cross? It was creation saying, this is God. And he is dying for the sins of man. This is why John can say at the end of his gospel, he writes these words. Now, there were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now, Jesus' life on earth was approximately 30 years. You could use all of the books of earth to contain everything he did in his human body for those 30 years. John's point here is he's pointing back to chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. If you were to write down everything Jesus has done, that would include everything that has ever happened throughout this infinite galaxy. You can't. The books cannot contain it all. That is the Jesus who we worship. And so we must note here that this work as creator is over both the spiritual and the physical realities of life. Paul makes this point painfully clear to us. He says of the things that Christ has made, he says whether they're in heaven or on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. So Paul says the spiritual things that exist, the angels, the demons, the things you cannot see, Christ created and upholds. And also the things you can see, Christ created and upholds. It says that even the thrones and the rulers and the authorities and the dominions were created by him and for him. Well, what does that mean? As I study this passage, most people want to take this idea of whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities as just the angels and the demons that are behind the earthly authorities. In the New Testament, those are often linked together. You will see that wherever there is a throne on earth, wherever there is an authority, that there is something spiritual going on behind that. And most commentators will take this part here, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, that is just referring to Jesus' rule over what is spiritual behind the physical. I'm not convinced by that. And honestly, I think it's a, a distinction without much of a difference. But the parallels in this passage is whether in heaven or on earth, whether seen or unseen. And then it gives you this list of things that are not seen and things that are seen. So all authorities, whether they be spiritual or earthly, were created by Christ and for Christ. And he is over them all. This is the vision that captured the early church. Uh, Michael Byrd, who's a New Testament scholar, who has recently gone off the deep end, uh, he wrote this about the early church's beliefs, and he's right. He said, Nero did not throw Christians to the lions because they confessed that, quote, Jesus is the Lord of my heart, end quote. It was rather because they confessed that Jesus is Lord of all, meaning that Jesus was Lord even over the realm that Caesar claimed as his domain of absolute authority. He's 100% correct. The reason why the early church was persecuted wasn't because they limited Jesus' lordship to their lives or to their hearts. Too many of us have forgotten that over the last several decades, that Christ's lordship is absolute and all-encompassing. And that is essential to the gospel message. You preach the right Jesus. Not a limited, safe Jesus, but the right Jesus. Polycarp was an early Christian leader. Uh, He was born in 69 A.D., and died in 155 A.D. as a martyr. The Romans were chasing him. His friends encouraged him to hide. He didn't want to hide. He didn't care about being a martyr. But eventually, the Romans caught up to him, and they came for him, and they brought him before the officials, and the officials said what? They said this to him, What evil is there in saying that Caesar is Lord? Why don't you just say that Caesar is Lord, offer the sacrifices, and save yourself? I mean, come on, Polycarp. I mean, the term Lord is flexible. Right? I mean, surely, surely Caesar was Lord over something, which he was. So can't you just mean it that way and not be killed? But Polycarp knew that Caesar took the term Lord upon himself as a divine title. And so Polycarp told them that they didn't need to tie him to the stake. They didn't need to nail him to the stake as they burned him alive. He'll just stand there and take it. And they burned him alive. Because he confessed that Christ alone is Lord, and he is Lord Lord over everything. And so Christ is the creator who made everything. He's the sustainer of everything. He rules over everything. And he's made everything, and it is all his. It is his inheritance. So what does that mean for you? What does that mean for you and for me? These are high-end theological truths that Paul is going to work out throughout the rest of this letter. But let me give you two basic applications this morning that will give you both a foundation for everything in life and a direction for it. And the first is one I've repeated endlessly this morning it is that Christ is Lord over absolutely everything. That's what Paul wants you to see in these six verses. But there's not a single sphere of life in which Christ is not Lord. And that means if you live or pretend as if or preach as if there is an area of life where that lordship should not be recognized, you are in rebellion against the true king of the universe. For some in the church do today teach as if there are areas of life that the church shouldn't speak on, but this is a betrayal of the message of the New Testament. And it is a cause of a lot of our problems. The church, as we see, as we will see next week, is Christ's people. And it is our job not just to declare what he did, but also who he is. This is the early confession of the church. Christ is Lord over everything. He made it all. He owns it all. He inherits it all. So you can't place him in the box that secular society wants us to place him in. To say he is just the Lord of your heart or just the Lord of the church or just the Lord over the area of religion is to deny a major part of who Jesus is. Second, because Christ is Lord over everything, because he made everything, because he upholds everything, and because he will inherit every single molecule in this universe, that means that everything matters. Absolutely everything. Monday's coming. I don't know what you're going to do tomorrow morning. But from time to time, I'm sure it creeps into your mind, does any of this matter? Does any of this make any difference? Is any of it important? I mean, we just went through Ecclesiastes. That was the question asked over and over again. Vanity of vanities. If Christ is not Lord over everything, then nothing matters. And yet, we read in these opening verses that Christ is the one who made this world. Christ is the one who still is actively upholding this world. Christ is the one who entered this world. Christ is the one who will remake this world. Christ is the one that will inherit this world. Therefore, it all matters. And to put not too fine a point on it, this world matters to you if you are in Christ, because not only will Christ inherit the world, but in Christ you will inherit this world. Remade as you work the soil, as you toil at home with your children, as you deal with life under the sun, you can think that none of it matters, but Christ says it all matters and all of it will be yours through him. It is important. It is worth fighting for. If you're looking for greater meaning and purpose in your life, the answer is not escapism, that this physical world doesn't matter and I'm just waiting to go to heaven. It's that this physical world matters and is going to be remade by Christ, all of it. And then it will be given to you, his people. These verses say that not only was everything made by him, not only was everything is everything upheld by him, but that everything was made for him. For him all things seen and unseen find their purpose in their relationship to christ they exist to glorify him they exist to display the wonders of his work so this means you exist for jesus christ your mind exists for christ your body exists for christ your children exist for christ The grass, the trees, the deer, the lions, the rocks, the stars, the water, the light, the electromagnetism, the laws of physics, all of them exist for Jesus Christ. And that means you can get up tomorrow into whatever sphere of life you're going into and declare the glories of Christ and enjoy the glories of Christ as shadows of the kingdom that is coming. For this world is his inheritance and it is your inheritance by grace through faith. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are the ruler over everything. And that in your Son, we see the image of you. And that in your Son, we have hope for today and for tomorrow. Lord, we pray that you may increase our hearts and our minds' desire for him. That we might see our lives as having meaning in our relationship to Him. And that we might go out into all of life and say, Christ is Lord. Yes, even here, Christ is Lord. For He made it all, and He died for it all. It's in His name we pray. Amen.